Hello and welcome to another episode of the Royal College of Pathologists podcast, Pathologists in Profile. This podcast series is kindly sponsored by Serdan, improving well-being through innovation. My name is Natasha Cutmore and I'm a histopathology trainee. Throughout 2023, we'll be featuring four podcast guests from across the different pathology specialties. In this episode, we'll be finding out about the life and career of our podcast guest, consultant in transfusion medicine, Dr. Heidi Doughty, OBE. Heidi graduated with her medical degree from Cambridge University in 1985 before going on to train in internal medicine, haematology and management in Nottingham and London. She has had a diverse career within transfusion medicine from working in hospitals, blood services and as an army reservist. Her career has enabled her to study and work on a wide variety of projects at home and abroad. Heidi's career has focused on the appropriate use of blood, transfusion for trauma and emergency preparedness. She served as an advisor in transfusion to a range of organisations, including the World Health Organisation. Her most recent roles include President of the British Blood Transfusion Society and Chair of the National Blood Transfusion Committee's Emergency Planning Working Group. She is semi-retired but continues to teach, support colleagues and contribute to SHOT, Serious Hazards of Transfusion, which is the UK's independent haemovigilance scheme. She has recently received a number of awards and was elected as an honorary fellow by St John's College, Cambridge in 2020. That's an incredibly interesting career. Thank you, Heidi, for joining us on the Pathologists in Profile podcast. Hello, Natasha, and it's a real pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me. That's our pleasure. Growing up, you felt at an early age that a career in healthcare and medicine was what you wanted. Could you tell us a little bit about your early interest in medicine? It's an interesting question, and I'm not really sure of the answer. Do you know, I've always wanted to be either a doctor or a nurse. Again, I'm not sure why. I think, you know, I had I had a first aid kit when I was six, which is a bit sad, really. And I I think it helped that my mother was also very interested in all things first aid. and, And there were brilliant books in the house. The best bit was the bandaging, the pictures of the bandaging. And even better is having a younger brother to practice on. I also have a younger brother and I know what that's like. Who inspired you at school? I think that's a lot easier to answer. It was the biology teachers at school. They took us out on fabulous field trips. They supported extra study. And I think the field trips gave me my first taste of planning and undertaking projects in the field, but also being able to follow up areas of interest. Mm, And those are both themes that continued throughout your life things don't always go to plan and you had to retake your A-levels. What did you learn about yourself during this year? Well, as you can imagine, I did quite well in biology. It's just the other subjects that was the problem. So the challenge, what to do next? You know, I'm still keen to do medicine. So I enrolled at the local technical college to retake my A-levels. It was a different syllabus, far more electronics, applied physics, but, you know, it worked for me. And the other thing was I worked during the year at uh, what they called an old people's home. And, you know, I did a whole variety of jobs, care assistant, laundress, cleaner, weekend cook. 
I discovered that I was really very practical and I just loved working across an organisation and seeing how all the bits fitted together. But I also learned that food is important and an essential part of care. Mm, that's a really important thing to highlight. You went on to study medicine, initially at Charing Cross in London and then completing the clinical course in Cambridge. Your first house jobs were in Cambridge and then you moved to Nottingham for your senior house officer jobs. Could you tell us about your time in haematology and how this influenced your future career? I think my interest in haematology started during my first six-month post as a haematology junior doctor in Nottingham. During that time, I attended a, a local course at the Sheffield Blood Centre, where I began to get an idea of the scope of transfusion practice. And I learnt that I loved both the lab and the logistics. Oh, very good. Um, and where did you go after your SHO jobs and what came next? Well, from Nottingham, I moved up to London and I was lucky enough to do my registrar training at St. Bart's Hospital in London. And it was there that I was introduced to the remarkable transfusion team led by Professor Alan Waters. And how did you become interested in transfusion medicine? Well, I think it's the people that you meet. And this team, I suspect it was probably one of the first hospital-based transfusion medicine teams. And at the time, they were working on platelet immunology and the associated clinical problems, one of which was neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia. And we had our own platelet apheresis next to the ward. And many of the donors were the police from the local station close to the hospital. They were really fantastic donors, so committed to the unit and the patients. We were collecting delivering platelets, not just to our own hemato-oncology patients, but also for the neonatal medicine unit at King's. And I think it was this experience that fired my passion for a specialty that truly spanned from vein to vein. Yeah, and it's so often it's the people that we work with um, during these times in our career that really inspire us. In 1998, you started work in Birmingham and continued to be a reservist alongside your work in the UK. How did you get involved in military transfusion? Well, I think it starts in childhood because my father was in the RAF and I enjoyed being a forces child living in Aden and Germany. So when I started med school in London, it just seemed natural to join the, the local unit, which was the University Officer Training Corps. And then having worked with them, I then transferred to the Army Reserves or Territorial Army, as it was called then. And I, I found it really interesting because I completed my military courses alongside my medical training. Uh, and the sort of courses we were doing ranged from leadership to tropical laboratory work. So it really complemented my civilian training. And then later on, as a consultant, I undertook my first project as a haematologist in 2002. And the aim for that project was to support a local blood donor service. Since that time, I've, I've worked overseas in a variety of places with the pathology teams. And more recently, in Sierra Leone during the Ebola crisis as a part of a, a civilian academic consortium. 
I don't know, I think it was just a real privilege to work with the various military project teams. And the sort of things we were doing was developing pre-hospital transfusion, treatment pathways for major trauma. And, and I'm really proud of the fact that many of these lessons have been rapidly adopted into civilian practice. And they're also affecting blood component development. And I think during this time, I've learned so much from my colleagues in the military about the practicalities of, of moving blood around, uh, the importance of logistics, demand planning, and all of that has just been so useful for my more recent work in emergency preparedness and business continuity. Yeah, and those are things that um, many of us don't have to think about as part of our regular jobs, um, but it's a really big part of, of your your job. Volunteering in the reserves has clearly been very important to you and a very important part of your life. What do you think the benefits are for those that hold volunteer roles in addition to their daily occupations to feel supported in their roles? Well, I really enjoyed my time in the reserves and I had the privilege of commanding a field hospital. And I think what we would say to employers is that the training and skills gained in the reserves can be used to improve performance in the civilian workplace, especially in areas such as leadership, teamwork, communication and decision making, often in really quite challenging situations. I've also supported St John's Ambulance, again, another fantastic organisation. And I suspect that the sort of benefits that I've seen from those are also seen in other volunteer roles, such as, I don't know, lifeboat service, supporting the emergency services as perhaps, um, you know, um, police support officers. There are so many different sorts of volunteering, and I think they just bring incredible benefits to individuals, their communities, as well as employers. Well, that's, that's really good to hear as well. Unfortunately, you became unwell whilst working abroad, and in 2012, you were diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. This is a life-changing diagnosis. Uh, what inspired you to continue your work? Well, I, I first became ill in I don't know, early 2000s, around about 2003, and it took a little while to confirm it as MS, and that sort of delay in diagnosis is, is not unusual. But we got to a point in, I don't know, 2012, where I was advised to retire from medicine. I'd had a really bad attack and, you know, I needed to go to rehab. But, you know, there were so many projects going on that I wanted to complete. And I felt a sort of commitment to the team. And it was just fantastic. I was so lucky with the support from my workplace, my medical director, um, my immediate boss, they were so incredibly supportive. And I think together with their encouragement, as well as some really practical help from an organisation called Access to Work, you know, I was able to, to get back to work because just because the body's not working doesn't mean the brain's still not there. And I think it was a slow journey, you know, slow journey back to work. You know, initially I had to use things such as voice-activated software to write. How, however, actually, it's quite difficult doing that with a computer. What you really need is a fantastic secretary or assistant. And, you know, together as a team, you can do projects. 
And, you know, when you have all that experience, you don't want it to go to waste. You still want to contribute, even if it's in a more restricted way. So I slowly built up stamina. I built up the sort of practical skills to actually leave the house. And then just over the last decade, I've been really lucky in so much that A, I got a lot better. B, I haven't been quite so ill again. So, you know, I think on balance, the, the MS slowed me down. But, you know, why let it define or limit you? Those are really powerful words. Doctors make notoriously terrible patients. What key points would you like to share about your time as a patient? Oh, God, we're useless patients. But I think it's very interesting, you know, because you see things from a totally different perspective. And I don't know, I think it just reinforced things I'd learned as a care assistant, that it's not just about acute medical care, it's care in the community and the continuation of care. On a personal level, lumbar punctures are incredibly painful. However, a nice cup of tea with a friendly smile really heals. And I think we mustn't forget that human touch. I think the other thing is my time as a care assistant helped me with the sort of practicalities of illness. And actually, if you can address the practicalities, you can go on to do all sorts of things. It also makes me realise there are just so many hidden heroes in the health system and we mustn't forget them. We really need to applaud them. So, as I've said before, you know, in healthcare, it's often the everyday aspects of life that are important and we mustn't forget that. Yeah. And in pathology as well, it's quite easy to forget that we're treating human beings first um, and the label patient comes second. A major theme of your work has involved taking what you've learned from often extremely chaotic and stressful situations and going on to develop guidelines and formal processes. Uh, each organisation works differently, but could you give us a general overview of how learning points become formalised into a national guideline or similarly important body of work? You know, I'm not sure I could answer that question incredibly well because I sort of fell into it almost by accident. I think um, I think we need to be really clear what's required and why. Is it, I don't know, a, a short aid memoir or a full guideline? You know, the best people to write aid memoirs, frankly, are the people that are doing the job rather than committees. But I think for a, a larger piece of work where you've got to weigh up, I know, the pros and cons of different decisions, you've just got to work in a team. And so for me, I used to be constantly horizon scanning, um, meeting different colleagues, trying to get different viewpoints, reviewing the literature, collecting feedback from workshops, incidents, multidisciplinary team meetings you try and pull it together and I think the production phase is, is quite difficult and I, I'm not sure that I'm the best I think you really need people that are expert in producing evidence-based guidelines and it, it takes time and I think it's easy to underestimate the time it takes particularly when there's pressure to produce the other thing is frankly you can put it out there and then get some and a feedback that you didn't want to hear, you've got to listen to the feedback. You need to make the changes because ultimately you're, you have to accept the fact that evidence is always evolving 
you know, guidance that you produce one year may have to be revised in five years time. And that constant um, review, listen, review, listen, that's, um, that's a big part of the cycle of producing those documents. Why is planning for emergency situations important? Well, I could say from a personal experience, having a plan B is quite useful. Um, I think ultimately it's about protecting patients. And all of us, all healthcare providers, need to demonstrate they can A, deal with emergencies, but B, at the same time, maintain critical services. Um, what do we mean by emergencies? You know, it can be anything from um, a major accident, but actually it could be extreme weather. It could be, you know, computer failure or even pandemics. So it's a, a sort of approach trying to give organizations and people resilience and it's a sort of a cyclical thing you know you look at risks you work out how to minimize the impact you prepare for a response which you then need to deliver and then recover and learn to constantly improve it's it's a really dynamic process a bit like writing guidelines and we all should be learning and improving as we go along Definitely. And again, those are very wise words. Many of us, particularly later on in our careers, find ourselves in management and advisory roles. What have you learned from these roles and what advice would you give to someone who finds themselves in one of these roles? Well, I suspect I, I ended up there a little bit earlier due to sort of ill health. Um, but, you know, I was lucky in having experience from I think the military side uh, which sort of helps a little bit with the sort of the leadership bit I think just to put it succinctly I'd say listen learn be prepared to change um, but certainly for me uh, best advice I would say is find a great personal assistant and then trust them. My nan always used to say a problem shared is a problem halved you wrote up your life's work into a formal thesis and were awarded a doctorate from the University of Bergen in 2018. How is this different from the traditional PhD doctorate in the UK, in particular the public defence of your thesis? I think the Norwegian system um, offers people the opportunity to, you know, do that very sort of traditional sort of European style of PhD later in life or the slightly more modern uh, research-based one earlier on. So basically, I'm just doing a really old-fashioned uh, European approach, which was just, it's just wonderful, just, you know, bringing all the bits and pieces together that I'd done and, and formalising it. So my research was exploring the recent developments in military transfusion, but more importantly, the implications for civilian healthcare. And, you know, it was just really interesting studying in another country and being subject to different rules. You know, I, I don't think the, the business of writing up is very different, but certainly the defence was quite entertaining. I hadn't realised that it was going to be a public affair and uh, publicised in the local press. Anyone could come. And um, I have to say it was quite, well, felt quite arduous. You know, there's a, a trial lecture that you've got to give before the defence, which in essence you need to pass. Um, the fun bit is 
they choose the title and then give it to you about a week beforehand. Uh, so, you know, you have to be on your toes and you're giving that lecture to everyone. It, it's quite fun. It's a little bit like being in front of, uh, I don't know, a group of undergraduates. And then they sort of formally decide, is your lecture good enough? Can you go forward to the formal defence? Relief. And then the, the defence itself is, I suppose it's not dissimilar in that you've got two examiners asking you about your thesis. But here, you know, they're on different sides of the room and they've got slightly different roles. But of course, they're doing it in public you're responding in public. And actually, there's, there's a point in proceedings where, in fact, people from the general public can also question the candidate. And um, I have to say, you know, at the end of about three hours, you feel quite exhausted. But my heavens, talk about a sense of personal victory. And then coming back to food again, great party in the department. Oh, well, I think you deserve that after going through all of that. Wow. Life outside of work is incredibly important and you've continued to volunteer your time to good and worthy causes. Could you describe your role of Deputy Lieutenant for the West Midlands? What is it and what does the role include? It's, a, it's an honorific role in which you are invited to consider and it just means that I'm, I'm one of a number of deputies to the Lord Lieutenant, in my case, it's of the West Midlands. And he is His Majesty's personal representative in the region. And the roles around supporting the whole community, the sort of civic, ceremonial, voluntary, charitable and social activities within our region. And, you know, it is such an honour because, you know, I've used the theme of hidden heroes. Oh, my heavens. The number of volunteers that keep society going, they just, they're, they are amazing. But I think, you know, two of the things that I really, really like is um, supporting the citizenship ceremonies where new people are becoming UK citizens. And then last year, we did a lot of preparation uh, and celebration um, for the Queen's Jubilee. And... I don't know, um, my husband and I were involved in planting trees as a part of the Queen's Green Canopy, and I just think that's a wonderful legacy. Oh, wow, that's excellent. What other hobbies do you have? You know, I just love being at home. Perhaps it's just because it's a bit of a novelty after sort of, you know, 30 years of work. I enjoy walking when I can. I love gardening and back to food again, cooking. But like, um, like many of my family, I also love my art. And so, you know, somebody once described my projects as being a sort of a um, creative chaos. And I, I quite like to apply that to any of my practical projects, particularly sort of designing areas of the garden. I love that. And who's been there at home to support you? Do you know, I think it's so important that we recognise, celebrate and thank those that support us because, you know, medicine is a, it is a tough career and we don't do it alone. And so for me, it's my family, especially my husband 
And I don't know, we just, just try and start and finish the day with a sort of a 10 minute walk around the garden. You know, I walk around, mug a tea, preferably accompanied by two cats. And then at the end of the day, it's it's a bit of a gratitude thing, but I also like to sort of check in with other members of the family, perhaps those that live abroad via a sort of video call. And, do you know, they, they stop you taking yourself too seriously and they certainly keep my feet on the ground. That's lovely. And your career has been incredibly diverse and challenging. What advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? Well, I was lucky that I knew I wanted to do medicine. But I think somehow you've got to try and find what it is uh, that's your passion and, and connect with it. Uh, and I think that's sometimes a bit difficult to find out, but you can only do it by actually getting out there. You accept opportunities. You know, don't be afraid to experience new things. I think you've, you've got to know yourself and then sort of work on your own mission. And the other thing, which is, you know, clear from my example, is that things don't always go to plan. And we, we just need to be resilient, carry on. And personally, I think the best way to do that is in a team, whether that's a professional team, personal team. And when I look back on my journey, you know, perhaps perhaps some of those setbacks provided new opportunities. And, you know, that's a good thing. Oh, definitely. Yeah, those are words to live by. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for talking to us today and for sharing your career and life experience. Thank you to our production team, without whom none of this would be possible. And thank you to you, our listeners, for listening. Tune in to the second part of this episode, where Heidi will be talking to us about the innovations and developments in transfusion medicine. You can catch up on previous podcast episodes at www.rcpath.org forward slash pathology podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'm Natasha Cutmore and you've been listening to the Royal College of Pathologists podcast, Pathologists in Profile, sponsored by Sir Dan. <laughs>